Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm wondering when you first got the email about Dora, like what was the thought that went through your mind? What went through my mind? Okay, I'll give it to you. Why would anybody do a documentary on Dora Watkins? John Arcuni lives in a gated community in Panama. It's one of the strangest places I've ever read about. A golf course neighborhood in the shadow of Panama's largest mountain, an active volcano. John grew up on Long Island, near Dora Watkins, and he knew Dora when they were teenagers. They'd ride horses around the neighborhood together. He lived a privileged life on an estate in Old Brookville. Do you know what an estate is? Yeah, I have an idea of what an estate is. Well, what is an estate? Tell You tell me and I'll I'll, I'll try and fix you up. Okay. (laughs) I should say... I don't think I've ever done an interview with someone so happy to talk to me while simultaneously drag me over the coals for having called in the first place. Well, my impression of an estate is rather a home with a lot of land and sometimes other that's buildings right. as you well. That's right. You got it. Right. You got it. Okay. And that's what most of the homes at that time were in Old Brookville. Okay. You know, they were, uh, you know, well-heeled. Plenty of money. Yeah. Plenty of money. When it comes to door, John does not mince words. When he was in his 20s, he let Dor stay at his house. And while Dor was there, mysteriously, John's television went missing. According to John, a couple months later, it turned up at a pawn shop with a receipt showing that Dor, in fact, was the one who'd pawned it. He was a thief. Hmm. I don't cotton the thieves. And I don't cotton the liberal journalists either. So keep asking your question. I hope you're not a liberal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course you are. I think Dor was pretty well estranged from his family, to tell you the truth. Oh, really? Why is that? I have no idea why. Maybe he didn't like the discipline. Maybe his father was too demanding. Dor's father's name was Gus. He was a pilot for Pan American Airlines. Do you get the sense that people really did kind of revere Gus, the father? The father, yes, was revered, Sure. You know, uh, pilots back in those days, they were considered to be something very, very special. (laughs) I could see somebody doing a documentary on his father. That idea. Why would you care about someone as screwed up as Dor Watkins? Why not talk about his incredible and heroic father? I heard this a lot. And so I figured, I don't know. What if I tried? What if I looked closely at the person who was the truest foil for Dor throughout his life? His dad. What might I learn? I'm Eric Mennel, and from Pineapple Street Studios, this is Stay Away from Matthew McGill. Part 4, The Hijacking. 
There were times in my reporting when it felt like Gus Watkins was as much a legend as he was a man. And at the heart of that legend is a story about a flight attendant, or as she would have been called at the time, a stewardess. Well, at about 10.30 or so that night, I got a call from crew scheduling asking me if I would come out for this flight 299 to San Juan, Puerto Rico. On the night of August 2nd, 1970, Carrie Gill was on call in Manhattan. She was in her early 20s, had moved from Detroit, and was working for Pan Am. And although I could have said no, you know, when you're brand new, you never say no. So, you know, I I got myself together, and I got in a taxi, and I went down to JFK. Um, I do recall talking to the taxi driver, and he was saying, you know, do you worry about getting hijacked? And I said, no, no, none of that stuff ever (laughs) happens. Actually, it kind of happened a lot. In the late 60s and early 70s, there was a rash of high-profile hijackings across the globe, more than 300 in just five years. Often they were politically motivated. Skyjacking became a fairly common tool among activists, a way to call attention to a cause. And a lot of the time, nobody got hurt. The planes were diverted to another country, the hijackers let off, and the plane continued on its way. But occasionally, things did go badly. And so the fear loomed large in people's minds. What is your opinion of the planes that are being hijacked today? Well, I live in Florida too, usually in the winter. And it's going to be kind of bad because I'm going to fly down there and wind up in Cuba. Carrie Gill was working on a 747, the newest and largest passenger jet in the world. It was basically an office building with wings. It held close to 400 people. Carrie worked in the back. And it was luxurious too. The front of the plane was two stories tall with a spiral staircase. The second floor was a private lounge for first-class passengers. That's where another stewardess, Patricia Lorenz, was stationed. They were just seating all around, and right at the top of the stairs, if you were looking up, to the left would be the cockpit and one restroom, and then there was a little bar area where you would mix the drinks. The plane took off, and Patricia went upstairs to serve cocktails. After a while, this guy came up, and he was standing on the spiral staircase, and he had a gun, and he had a a bottle or glass or something in his hand, and he just kept saying, you know, Cuba, Castro. So I'm looking, and I start looking at this gun to see if I could see bullets. I mean, I'd never really seen a gun before. And then he said, well, I have nitro. And then when he said gun, nitro, I thought, I said, my knees got a little weak at this point. There's no place to hide. My thing was, if he starts shooting, there's nowhere to go. So I went to the cockpit door and I said to myself, I'm not going to unlock it, but they have the little peephole. Mm-hmm. And I said, maybe if I start really pounding on this door, they'll think it's kind of crazy, or they'll look and they'll see this guy with a gun. Inside that cockpit, hearing that pounding, was the captain, a 56-year-old man with white hair and a smile that took up half his face. His name was Gus Watkins. He was a real Southern gentleman. Carrie Gill knew Gus from the pool of pilots at Pan Am. He'd made an impression on her in the past. He showed up for dinner one night, you know, he was wearing a suit. Mm-hmm. But instead of wearing a tie, he was wearing an ascot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, am I impressed? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that in Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, And he exuded a, a lot of self-confidence mm-hmm. and a lot of strength. At 2.47 a.m., while Gus was still at the controls of his plane, the hijacking began. 
dos horas, algo así. Eh, una hora cuarenta y cinco minutos, algo así. Ahí yo me paré, ¿eh? This is Rodolfo Rivera Rios, the hijacker. He talked to me from a federal prison in West Virginia with the translator on the line. Two hours into the flight, I stood up to go to the cockpit. I went to the girl, meaning the stewardess. I put the gun to her ribs and I said, let's go to Cuba. When Gus Watkins heard what was happening, he decided to engage Rivera Rios. He told the New York Times that, at first, he tried to talk him out of it. But it didn't work. Rivera Rios wanted to go to Havana. Because the whole world at that time was taking planes from here to Cuba. So I thought about that and I decided to do it. I was young, 26 years old. Now I'm 74. So these are the errors of youth. When Gus landed the plane in Havana, the Cuban military was there to meet him. Here's Carrie. When we landed, they brought a stairwell up to the aircraft. This being Cuba, there was nothing that would fit a 747. So they brought the stairwell up, but they had to put a ladder on top of the stairwell in order to get to the door. A bunch of soldiers with rifles boarded the plane to look around. Rivera Rios was not exactly welcome to the island. He was arrested and taken away. Gus Watkins decided to get off the plane too, apparently by his own volition. And from the windows, passengers could see Gus approach another man waiting on the tarmac. Fidel Castro was there. So it was still, you know, very early in the morning, so it's still kind of dark outside. But, you know, we could see his beard and everything, and he had his <laughs> typical hat on. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, and that was, I think, kind of exciting because, you know, it's like Fidel Castro. Who gets to see Fidel Castro? By all accounts, Gus kept his cool. Supposedly, Castro had never seen a 747 in person before, and so he was pretty taken by it. Gus gave him a tour of the exterior. Gus Watkins told us that he invited Castro onto the aircraft, Mm -hmm. but Castro refused because he felt that he would scare the passengers or we thought that he thought we would, uh, you know, close the doors and take off with him. (laughs) Oh. Castro was no fan of America, but having several hundred Americans trapped in Cuba was not ideal for anyone. So, less than an hour later, he gave Gus Watkins the go-ahead to leave. And the plane flew to Miami, where Gus and the passengers met the FBI for debriefing. In the stories and photos across New York, Gus is the central figure, having saved the lives of hundreds of people. The Times mentioned the 11 infants on board. He was a 1970s Sully Sullenberger, only in Cuba, as opposed to the Hudson River. And really, it was par for the course when it came to Gus. I think one of the things with him was, if you flew with him, that he was going to protect his crew, he was going to back his crew, hmm. and, you know, you, you would never have any any doubts about it. Yeah. You seem to have a really fond memory of Gus Watkins. Is that yes. normal for you, or do you remember all of the pilots, or was he sort of extraordinary no. in some ways? I very rarely remember most of the pilots, even then. You know, there were a few, and even now there are a few that are that are pretty special. He would always you know, showed the strength of if there were a problem, even on, okay, this hijacking. You know, he was going to do his best to do what he could do to keep us together. Mm-hmm. And I, that's very rare.
So much of the material in Dorr's box was about Gus. There were old flight logs from when he flew freight planes in Europe, and an envelope where he scribbled his high school grades down before applying to Georgia Tech. There was a postcard from Gus's own father, Joseph, postmarked 1920, on the back of a photo of Stone Mountain. Before it was turned into a Confederate monument, Joseph writes, How about this big rock? Daddy's love for you is a whole lot more. Some of my favorite items in the box are letters Gus wrote to his own mother and sister in the 1920s and 30s. I asked an actor to read one. Wednesday. Hi, Mom. Gus was stationed in Pensacola, Florida. This is a letter he sent back home about learning to fly stunts. Well, the weather finally cleared up enough for us to get in some flying time. Monday, I went up above the clouds to get my stunting altitude. The clouds closed in tight and formed a smooth white carpet about 5,000 feet below me. Certainly was beautiful. When I was close to them, between the sun and the clouds, I could see my flyers cross. A cross formed by the shadow of my plane traveling across the surface of the clouds. Someday, I'll invade you to take the trip. 5,000 feet seems high, but isn't what you would imagine. Mountains are much higher. So long. Till later. Lots of love. Gus. I spent a lot of nights over the last five years on the floor of my apartment, sorting through all this stuff about Gus and Dor and their family. There are moments I've been almost entranced, staring at the black and white images of the kids on ponies, or of Dor hoisted onto his father's shoulders. One of my favorites is a photo of Dor as a baby, sitting in a little red radio flyer-style wagon in the yard, with a picnic blanket set up next to him. The picture is mounted on a blue sheet of paper, and handwritten next to it are three words. The Little King. Dor's childhood had been so drastically different from mine. He'd grown up in one of the wealthiest communities in the country, riding horses. I grew up in the suburban sprawl of swampy Florida, chasing snakes out of the yard with a shovel. Dor's father flew planes for Pan Am. My dad worked in a body shop that fixed Honda Civics. And at some point, I realized... It wasn't just curiosity I was feeling towards the Watkins family. It was jealousy. I was jealous of the money and the horses and the homes, but also, I was jealous of the material itself. Not many people have this kind of detail to fill out the story of their family. I can remember exactly one letter my mom wrote to me over the years. I was in college, sophomore year, and I was broke. Like, worried about buying groceries broke. And I told my mom this because... Growing up, occasionally, she would tell me when we were broke. It was the kind of thing we shared without any expectation the other person could solve it. Like friends. A couple of days after I told her this, a letter arrived in the mail in Tallahassee. I opened it up, and there was a $20 bill inside, with a note on a folded-up piece of paper. It's all I have right now, but I hope it helps. Love you. Mom. I couldn't even tell you what happened to that note. The starkest contrast between Dor and his father may have come at the very end of their lives. Dor died alone, with nobody to help pay his medical bills. Gus, meanwhile, got an obituary in the Washington Post. There were bagpipes and a gospel choir at his funeral, champagne, bourbon. The entire family was there, including Dor. That was in 1993. What happened between that moment and 2015, when Dor died? The only people who could explain the difference between these two deaths were the people who were around for both. Dor's siblings, 
That's after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Okay, so this will be like going to uh, get a root canal. Uh, well, hopefully not quite so bad. No, yeah. Root canal, you have a, a healthy tooth at the end of it. Well, um, I, let's just jump right in then. Uh, why don't you go ahead and start and just tell me your name and, and how you were related to Dor. So it's uh, Richard Watkins. I'm the youngest brother of Dor Watkins, a.k.a. Matthew McGill. Dor was the oldest in a family of four kids. He had one sister and two brothers. Richard is the youngest. He lives in San Francisco now where he works in real estate. He has three grown kids, three grown stepkids, and two golden retrievers. We were a very athletic and competitive family mm-hmm. between sailing and riding and running and something called beagling. Beagling is when you train a pack of beagles to hunt hares by scent. It's one of those waspy activities that manages to feel refined while actually being pretty brutal. Like horse racing, or, you know, massive wealth accumulation. For as much as I've grown frustrated by Dor over the years, his brother Richard has always been exceedingly kind and open. He and his siblings grew up in the village of Old Westbury, on the north shore of Long Island. It was all but idyllic for a bunch of young, unsupervised kids. I would have forts everywhere. I had tree houses, I had burrows. I had hanging ladders coming down from trees to climb up. We used to have a battle out there in the courtyard. This is Dor's other brother, Thorne. He was in his 70s when I interviewed him in Virginia, and he needed a walker to get around. But he remembers being an active kid. He and Dor would defend their home from other boys around the neighborhood, hiding in bushes with pellet guns. And when the outside intruders were skim, the brothers would go after each other. Dor gets pretty pissed off every now and again because... I'm the one who shot his eye out. One day, around 1950, Dor and Thorne were shooting BBs at each other from the backs of their horses, like the cowboys they saw in movies. At one point, Dor got off his horse and creeped around the side of a barn to try to sneak up on Thorne. Well, I'm no dummy. 
I got off my horse, got a fence right there, I put the rifle on the fence, I took aim on it and fired. And that BB went down the sights, ricocheted off the, the last sight and went into his right eye. So his, his pupil is now elongated in one direction. They got into all kinds of scrapes. Doran Thorne once got busted for shooting off fireworks during a cocktail party at the mayor's house. Doran would hitchhike places with his youngest brother, Richard, sitting on his shoulders. In a lot of respects, it was a Rockwellian childhood. But Doran was a hard kid. He was strong-willed. He didn't want to finish high school. In fact, he dropped out before graduating. Doran jokes about the BB being at the root of the behavior. But both he and Richard said there were more significant things going on at home. Their father, Gus, spent much of his time away on long flights around the world. But he was also the parent who handled discipline. Many times, by the time he was returning, my mother was building up punishments to be administered by him. So the dynamic was my father became the pariah of corporal punishment. He became the enforcer and the bad cop. You know, he'd get home and there's my mother complaining about somebody's behavior, particularly doors. What are you going to do about it? You know, punish him. He had a deal in his office. His office had tile on the floor. We'd have to stand on the the tile and put our feet, our toes on one of these uh, cracks. And you'd bend over and hold your ankles. According to Thorne, Gus would then pull out a whip used by the gauchos in Peru something like a cat of nine tails that splits into multiple strands of rope. He'd whoop you with that, and that really took care of things. I used to try and put comics down my backside. My father figured that out in a heartbeat, and he'd pull them out and throw them in the center of the room and said, now bend over. So I, we're going to get whooped one way or the other. For Thorne's part, he actually didn't find the punishments that problematic. He thought his father was fair about it, punished each kid according to their transgressions, of which Dor had many. But when it comes to the box and what's inside, Dor doesn't mention the physical punishment much at all. What eats at him is more subtle. My father. I kept his secrets. I keep them still. This is from a sort of journal entry in the box, written by Dor. I asked an actor to read it. A perk to having a pilot father was that Dor got to travel with him quite a bit. This is a memory from one of those trips. We'd gone to Paris. I was 13 or 14. We'd stayed at the Hotel de l'Oiseau on the Avenue de Wilson, a short stroll to both L'Etoile and Les Champs-Élysées. I went to the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower and here and there, always alone. My father was busy. One night, we went to the Follies and the Lido. A lovely lady who was a Pan Am stewardess went with us. She was very nice to me. I used to know her name, but one of the years... We went to a nightclub later that night called The Birdcage. It had a jazz band. I danced once with my father's friend. Coming home to the U.S., we were driving to our house. We were barely a mile and a half away when my father pulled the car to the roadside. The road is a lovely alley of maples, 30 to 40 feet tall, planted half a century earlier. It was a beautiful day. I cannot remember anything in that silence but the trees. They were my sole comfort in the awful silence, waiting for my father to speak. You cannot tell your mother about my friend, nor about the nightclub, the follies. Do you understand? Everything was still, 
It was as if the emerald L.A. held its collective breath. I could not articulate it, but I understood with a deafening loneliness that I had been joined into a conspiracy. Yes, sir. Good boy. He put the car in gear, and we drove the last mile and a half in silence. My father and I, his accomplice. His father was extremely harsh. He was not warm and fuzzy. This is Jenny O'Hara again, Dor's first wife. And Torrance was not able to be either. Torrance was Dor's mother. Because she was terrified of losing him to an attractive stewardess, I guess. You know, when you go through an experience like that, like he did with his family growing up, that is so damaging. And unless you do a lot of work on yourself, you're not going to survive that. Mm-hmm. So he kept, in a way, making his father's prophecy that he was worthless come true by using his natural talent and clear charm to achieve things that then fell apart, that then he destroyed, confirming his father's belief in him, of him. That's something that Gus thought about him? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Made him feel worthless. I guess I haven't mentioned this yet, but it feels important. Dor was actually Dor Watkins's middle name. His full legal name was August Dor Watkins, the same as his father's. Inside the box, there's a Xerox copy of a very old news story. It's just a single page from 1926. Early on the morning of December 14th, a young lawyer in Augusta, Georgia, woke up and began putzing around his home. It was his daughter, Josephine's 11th birthday, and there were chores to be done before her party that night. When Josephine woke up, he gave her a gift. Then the young lawyer laced up his shoes and headed to his downtown office for his one meeting that day. On the way, he picked up party favors and incidentals for later that night. He was meeting with three other men at the firm. They had just lost a big murder case, one that made national headlines, when a woman was convicted of chasing her husband and the father of her children across the country to kill him. He'd abandoned them, she said, and wouldn't send financial support. The lawyer needed to plan her appeal. During the meeting, he sat on the windowsill of his fourth-floor office, the window was open, and at some point, the lawyer lost his balance. He fell from the window, headfirst, into the ground. He died, the paper says, almost instantly. The daughter, Josephine, turned 11. She'd grow up to marry a painter and become close friends with Jackson Pollock. The lawyer's 12-year-old son, Josephine's brother, Gus, became the family patriarch. In just a few short years, he joined the Navy, become a pilot, and go on to have an illustrious career with Pan Am. He'd have four children of his own. My father had lost his father when he was 12. I don't think he really learned how to be a father. He kind of was thrust into that head of household realm pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think uh, when his family came around, he didn't have any mentor. And it was, okay, well, I can certainly use a switch and a character or a personality type of door 
that was probably just the opposite type of treatment that you needed. You, you want to conquer them with love and not with corporal punishment. If he drives well enough, I'll be back. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. In 2017, I decided I wanted to see Dor's childhood home for myself. I'd made contact with a childhood friend of his who said she could show me the place. Her name is Eileen Andahazi. She met the Watkins family at a horse show when she was about eight years old. She loved Dor's parents, said they were wonderful to her. She's too old to drive now, but she let me drive her car. Oh, it's great. I love this car. Yeah. I put all those miles on it myself. 132,000. Nice. Yeah. Eileen took care of some of the most famous horses in the world, here in one of the richest communities in the world. She name-dropped Seattle Slough as we pass estates formerly owned by families with names like Vanderbilt, DuPont, and Whitney. You go left. One of the most vivid memories of my childhood is getting in the car with my mom and brother after my dad got mad. He never hit us, but he'd knock stuff around, yell. He did break in my door once. When he'd get like this, my mom would put us kids in the car and drive around the nice part of town to look at the big houses, places with names like Bardmore and the Bayou Club. I remember my mom pointing out the French doors and bay windows that she wanted to put on our house, quote, when we win the lottery. I remember calling dibs on the big in-ground pools, like you do with cattle when you're on a road trip. And I remember the smell of rotten eggs. Because in this part of town, people could afford to have automatic sprinklers water their lawns every night. The reclaimed water they used was full of sulfur, like fireworks. It's the one thing I always held on to when meeting a rich kid. They may have had a screened-in pool, but their neighborhood smelled terrible. Wow, this is really beautiful back here. Oh, yes, it is. Long canopy of trees. These are all old estates. All of these houses are estates. Wow. Polo Club. Eileen and I turn off the main highway, and I feel like I recognize where we are. The vegetation looks familiar, the fences. Even the light feels like I've driven here before. Feels like stepping into a story I've read a hundred times. I'm a little breathless and distracted. Oh, didn't see that one. I'm sorry. It's okay. You didn't hurt anything. We pull off to the side, and there's a canopy of trees above us. It looks just like the place Dor described in his letter. I think this is the place where Gus would have told him to keep his affairs quiet. I think this is the place where Dor came to see himself as an accomplice. If I'm right, I am parked in the very place where Dor really started to feel that he had something to run from. This might have even been it. This might have been it? Yeah. This looks familiar? Looks familiar. Oh yeah. These trees are old. These are the same trees. Oh yes, they're old. We drive a little further, and I see Dor's old home. It's smaller than I imagined, two buildings connected by a walkway overhead. I see the spots where the boys rode their horses. I see the corner Dor was sneaking around when his brother, Thorne, shot him in the eye with a BB gun. I see the shop where Gus would have whipped him for constantly misbehaving. I roll down the window, and the smell is fresh and crisp. It seems like a pretty magical place to it is. grow up. It is. They're all lucky they, they had to grow up with. Sitting here, outside Dor's childhood home, I have two thoughts. 
The first is that the more I learned about Dor, his father, and his relationships with his family, the more it felt like the box itself was not what I first imagined it to be at all. It was not a time capsule holding generations of wealth and glamour and privilege. It was an object lesson in how we choose to be in this world. Dor was not destined to become the person he did, no more than Gus was, or I am. We're born into what we're born into, but that's no excuse for cruelty. The second thought I have is that my mom would love it here. She'd love these windows. She'd love these doors. It's the kind of wealth she dreamed about when she was a kid. I wish I could show her this, share this place with her. I wish things were better between us now. I couldn't tell you the number of times I've asked myself the question. Why would anybody do a documentary on Dora Watkins? The story was messy and heavy. Every person involved was more complicated than I'd imagined, and at every turn, the whole thing would shapeshift into something new, something I hadn't dealt with before. Even if I was starting to understand Dora Watkins, I didn't like him, and I was not about to try to convince anybody else to like him either. But I couldn't give up the ghost. And I was starting to see why. If you spend enough time thinking about Dora Watkins, you start to think about estrangement. And for better or worse, I could not help but think about myself. I couldn't help but realize I was becoming more estranged from my family than I cared to admit. All those drives I took with my mom, where she put us kids in the car while my dad cooled off, they were situated so firmly in my memory. They felt so central to my childhood And yet, we never talked about them or what they meant. In fact, in my family, we didn't talk about much of anything. We didn't talk about the drives or my leaving home or about my parents finally divorcing a few years ago. We didn't talk about the fact that we didn't talk. And I remember it so clearly this day in San Francisco when I visited Dor's brother, Richard, and I was overcome with this need to reach out to my family, to ask them to talk about the last several years, about what had changed, Like, this was not how things were supposed to go for us. It was hard to articulate, but it felt like what I had been stumbling towards for a while. So, I took a deep breath, and I wrote to my family, and I asked them all if we could talk. And they said yes. So I went home to Florida. And the first person I wanted to talk to was the person who'd been asking me to talk for years. Okay, so... You're mad that I never podcast about you. Yes. Like, if someone were stalking you, and they're trying to figure out what your entire life is like based off your podcast, I would not exist in this life because you never say anything about having a sister. You talk about mom, dad, brother, and that's it. It's like I didn't exist. My sister, who, turns out, had a story to tell all along. That's next.
Stay Away From Matthew McGill was created by me, Eric Mennel, with Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Elliot Adler and me, edited by Joel Lovell and Hilary Frank, with editing help from Lisa Pollack. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Fact-checking and research by Sarah Ivory, mixing by Hannes Brown, production management by Grace Chen, social by Hadim Jang, marketing and visuals by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, Melissa Wester, and Hilary Schoof at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Alana Casanova-Burgess, Peter Gross, Jenny Crick, and Jason Paul Tate. Unlicensed podcast therapist, Rachel Ward. Early reporting for this project was supported by Gimlet Media, original scoring by Blank Forms. Our credit song, On the Cusp, is by the band Any Kind. Since our interviews, both Carrie Gill, the Pan Am flight attendant, and Dor's oldest brother, Thorne, passed away. A belated and heartfelt thank you to both of them for their time over the years. This show is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. Odyssey is home for all the podcasts, music, news, and sports audio that matters to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. You can download it for free on the App Store or on Google Play. That's Odyssey. A-U-D-A-C-Y.